This is the More Than Right Podcast, an independent view of politics and American culture. I'm your host, Steve Lopez. The investigative team of M. Stack and Andrew Kaczynski of CNN's K-File wrote a piece regarding the Trump-backed candidate for Michigan's Secretary of State, Christina Caramo. The upshot of the piece is that Caramo is unfit to serve in politics due to her stance on abortion. You see, she's against it for religious reasons. And she's not a social justice Christian, she's a true believer. CNN dug up old episodes of Karamo's podcast titled It's Solid Food. According to Karamo, abortion is morally equivalent to an ancient barbaric evil. Quote, abortion is really nothing new. The child sacrifice is a very satanic practice, and that's precisely what abortion is. We need to see it as such. When people in other cultures, when they engage in child sacrifice, They didn't just sacrifice the child for the sake of bloodshed. They sacrificed the child because they were hoping to get prosperity, and that's precisely why people have abortion now, unquote. She noted that in ancient times, infants were sacrificed, quote, to these deities, which were really demons, unquote, and said having, quote, intimate relationships with people who are demonically possessed or oppressed, I strongly believe that a person opens themselves up to possession, unquote. At times, politicians say things that sound strange and unfamiliar to the modern secular ear, especially when it comes to traditional religious beliefs. But I'm sure some listening to this very podcast have no problem believing Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. In 2019, the intellectually challenged representative of millennial vacuousness issued an apocalyptic warning. AOC said our world will end by the year 2031 if we don't give progressive Democrats control of the U.S. economy and our lives. The best way to save our dying world is to stop the production of man-made carbon emissions by ending all use of fossil fuels. President Joe Biden's war on American energy producers and its resulting high gas prices and high inflation is a taste of what will come by 2031. It will be the end of a prosperous industrial age America and the beginning of an impoverished neo-neolithic age of wind and solar energy, mass poverty, and mass hunger. The point is that religious faith surrounds us. Today's over-the-top environmental and feminist extremism are variations on the ancient nature and goddess-worshipping sects for whom human sacrifice was all in a day's work. And the simple-minded AOC is a member in good standing with both secular death cults. And that brings us back to Michigan Secretary of State candidate Christina Caramo. When California Democratic Representative Ted Lieu read CNN's report on Caramo's views regarding the satanic nature of abortion and the specter of demonic possession, the congressman took to Twitter. Quote, Dear GOP candidate Christina Caramo, demons are stronger than you think. They don't need an intimate relationship to do demonic possession. I played Dungeons and Dragons and know this for a fact. 
Here is a list of the 15 most powerful demons from D&D, unquote. Lou provided a link to a web page with detailed descriptions and illustrations describing the demons associated with the D&D role-playing game. Clearly, the post was meant to ridicule what Lou believes are Karamo's unenlightened religious views. But some were not pleased with Congressman Lou's references to Dungeons & Dragons, like Roy Young at the gaming review website Game Rant. Quote, Needless to say, Karamo's comments harken back to an era of satanic panic in the 1980s, which never went away, but also hasn't been seen so dramatically in politics in a generation. Perhaps that's why Lou decided to mention Dungeons & Dragons in his post on Twitter, if only to make reference to a time when Dungeons & Dragons players were looked at as Satanists. That's something that's happened again. Only instead of Dungeons & Dragons players being targeted, pro-choice supporters and women seeking reproductive health are, unquote. You'll find a lot online about the Great Satanic Panic of the 1980s, usually with a decidedly disapproving tone. But the subject of Satanism's rise in the United States was enough of a phenomenon that Time magazine produced a cover story on the topic for its June 1972 issue. They tied it to the rise of America's youthful counterculture movement, which also coincided with the publication of Anton LaVey's The Satanic Bible in 1969. The same year Charles Manson's followers butchered actress Sharon Tate, her unborn child, and five of her closest friends. Like the lost middle-class followers in Manson's confused family, Time noted members of LaVey's Church of Satan were, quote, almost banal in their normality. Their most insidious contribution to evil is their resolute commitment to man's animal nature, stripped of any spiritual dimension or thought of self-sacrifice. Under the guise of eschewing hypocrisy, they actively pursue the materialistic values of the affluent society, without any twinge of conscience to suggest there might be something more." Unquote. In a sense, the game Dungeons & Dragons expresses this middle-class malaise, a search for magical grandeur without the moral demands of Judeo-Christian belief, a world of miracles with purely selfish aims. In the New Testament book of John, even Jesus laments humanity's insatiable need for miracles. Quote, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Unquote. But the adventure quests, demon adversaries, and conjuring that are part and parcel of the D&D role-playing game has brought evil in its wake. In 1984, Irving Pulling, 16, died tragically. According to his mother, Irving had become obsessed with D&D shortly before shooting himself in the chest. Young Irving left a note saying his D&D character received a curse that day from another player. Irving's mother, Patricia, would later form the group Bothered by Dungeons & Dragons, or BAD, to advocate against the game. The following year, CBS's 60 Minutes dedicated a segment to the subject. CBS correspondent Ed Bradley noted, quote, there are those that are fearful that the game in the hands of vulnerable kids could do harm, and there is evidence that seems to support that view, unquote. Listed among the dead were Timothy Grice, 21, a victim of suicide by shotgun. According to Bradley, quote, 
the detective report noted D&D became a reality, unquote. The same was true for Daniel and Stephen Irwin, ages 16 and 12, a strange case of murder-suicide. Again, Bradley said the police noted both boys were obsessed with the game. As was true for James Allen Kirby, 14, who shot and killed his junior high school principal and wounded three others. As Bradley said, the list goes on. But Professor Christopher Robichaud isn't having any of this. He's the senior lecturer in ethics and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. In a TED Talk he gave in 2017, Robichaud recalls growing up in the small town of Chardon, Ohio. It was during the satanic panic of the 80s, and his uncle gifted him the TSR Incorporated tabletop role-playing game Dungeons and Dragons. But Robichaud also recalls receiving a pamphlet then making its way around town decrying the game's contribution to the moral corruption of the young, and the tract also announced a public meeting on the topic to be held in the basement of the Chardon Public Library. Curious, Robichaud attended. Quote, There was a psychiatrist who was sharing her stories about how she was absolutely convinced that some of the cases she saw of people who wanted to kill themselves were wanting to kill themselves because of Dungeons and Dragons, unquote. Then Robichaud yields this creepy aside, quote, There was a police officer dressed as a police officer with, you know, a gun and a badge, saying he had gone to arrest somebody on drug charges. And when he went to arrest this person, this person was playing Dungeons and Dragons. When he then went to make the actual arrest, this person seemed to reveal supernatural power, unquote. Professor Robichaud recalls his younger self thinking that he must be playing the game all wrong, not having experienced similar preternatural abilities. He goes on to say he found the game instrumental in developing role-playing situations he uses to teach ethics at Harvard. One particular challenge forces the participant to, quote, confront scenarios without clear lines of authority. So, the thought here is you can't just say, wow, this is a really tough issue. Who should be the person that is answering this? It's up to you, unquote. This is called situational ethics, where one becomes the sole moral arbiter, without outside influence of religion or philosophy, an ethical system shaped by the inner monsters and demons within one's own character, a realm where the only player is the dungeon master an overlord who can choose to see the unborn as inconvenient tissue mass to be disposed of in creative and horrific ways, or as a precious being entitled to life, liberty, and happiness. It's a choice between the ever-changing ethics of Harvard professor Christopher Robichaud or the consistent moral ethos of Christina Caramo's Judeo-Christian worldview. Both realms contain horrific demons, but only one is ruled by a god of boundless love and perfect justice. If I were a rabid atheist, I would still prefer to live under the uplifting ladder than the appalling former. We all have a role to play in this life, and must choose it wisely. As Kurt Vonnegut wrote in his novel Mother Night, We are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be. 
1957, the Atlantic magazine's Wright Morris said of Norman Rockwell's art, quote, The convincing realism of the details, photographic in their accuracy, is all subtly processed through the filter of sentiment. It is this sentiment that highlights the reality, making it for some an object of affection, for others, a small minority, an object of ridicule. It all depends on that intangible thing, the point of view, unquote. In other words, Rockwell's renderings of early 20th century utopian America were so clear in meaning and accurate in rendering, it was difficult to find a future American paradise in the chaotic abstractions of modernism's splattered canvases. Their depictions lacked the main ingredients to Rockwell's stark realism, a loving sentimentality for place and subjects, that is to say, a love for the United States of America and her people. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that the Biden White House recently removed Rockwell's art from its walls. Images consisting of the artist's watercolors and graphite impressions of the White House waiting room circa 1943, created for the Saturday Evening Post. It consists of vignettes showing reporters mobbing a government spokesman, a war hero waiting his turn to meet FDR, and a beauty queen and photographer cooling their heels outside the Oval Office. The illustrations were part of a series entitled, So, You Want to See the President. Rockwell gave the illustrations to Steve Early, press secretary to President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Early's descendants lent the works to the Carter White House back in 1978, the year of Rockwell's death. Political reports that the Early family requested the works back from the White House sometime last year, but said their valiant efforts for comments from family members, the FDR Presidential Library and Museum, and the White House all failed. In other words, it's not clear whether the Early family requested that the White House return the Rockwell works, upset with Biden's destruction of the Democratic Party less than two years into his presidency, or whether the Biden White House and the hateful stenographers of the press corps were the ones who requested the removal so as not to be reminded of a past Democratic administration that successfully guided America through a global economic depression and world war. As America moves decidedly away from its Norman Rockwell ideals, there are those who've decided to reinterpret the artist to better fit the times. In the book Norman Rockwell, The Underside of Innocence, author Richard Halpern suggests the artist's images of children are decidedly sexual in nature, but assures his readers, quote, I certainly do not wish to tarnish Rockwell's image, to replace the good man with a bad one, to imply that the embodiment of a distinctly American kind of innocence was in fact a pedophile. Let me be perfectly clear on this point. There is not the slightest evidence that Rockwell treated his models or any other child with anything but the strictest probity. Indeed, the pedophilic joke that his boy models play on Rockwell bespeaks their deep level of comfort with him, even as it picks up on the latent eros that always binds artist and model." Unquote. That paragraph ends in a decidedly creepy way. It insinuates that it was Rockwell's adolescent male models who playfully endeavored to seduce the old artist, 
that Rockwell subliminally included their lurid adolescent enticements in his paintings, and this was written in 2006. Today, Walt Disney executives openly and proudly admit their animated content for very young children will include more LGBTQ plus characters. And the Disney Corporation even condemned the state of Florida for passing a law giving parents power to control educational materials containing LGBTQ plus sexual content, materials aimed at children in kindergarten through third grade. And who can forget all the glowing news coverage of elementary schools and public libraries across the country introducing young children to Drag Queen Story Hour? Last January, USA Today ran a piece by Aliyah Dastiger, whose journalistic beats include mental health, media ethics, sexism, and racism. Quote, When most of the public thinks of pedophilia, they assume it's synonymous with child sexual abuse, a pervasive social problem that has exploded to crisis levels online. Researchers who study pedophilia say the term describes an attraction, not an action and using it interchangeably with abuse fuels misconceptions, unquote. She later quotes Old Dominion University professor Alan Walker, who advocates for, quote, destigmatizing pedophilia, unquote. USA Today went on to scrub their Twitter account of its discussion on the normalization of pedophilia, and Old Dominion later fired Professor Walker. American society, it appears isn't quite on board with pedophilia. Yet. Meanwhile, author Deborah Solomon in her book, American Mirror, The Life and Art of Norman Rockwell, writes, quote, When Rockwell published his first cover for the Saturday Evening Post in 1916, there was no radio, television, or internet, and the Post was the national frame of reference. As the largest circulation magazine in the country, It helped spawn a new kind of culture, mass culture. Millions of Americans who loved Rockwell's work never saw an original painting of his. Instead, they sat at their kitchen tables poring over the latest issue of the Saturday Evening Post and reading his images. Rockwell invented the small town that is located nowhere in particular, the small town that is large enough to encompass the entire population of the United States, unquote. But then Solomon asks, quote, Was Rockwell homosexual? It depends on what you mean by the word. He demonstrated an intense need for emotional and physical closeness with men. He was always seeking, it seemed, the protecting wing of a brother. Even after he became famous, he required the nearly constant companionship of men whom he perceived as physically strong. He sought out friends who went fishing in the wilderness and trekked up mountains, men with mud on their shoes, daredevils who were not prim and careful the way he was. Although he married three times and raised a family, he acknowledged that he didn't pine for women. He was given to affections that do not fit any known label, and his life was not made any easier by having lived in an era when a man was expected to share his life with what used to be called a swell girl, unquote. The White House obviously rejects the previously mentioned modernist portraits of Rockwell that serve as a cudgel in the bizarre sexual theater of the culture wars. 
And clearly, the Biden White House rejects Rockwell for his artistic achievements and what he said about himself. Quote, The view of life I communicate in my pictures excludes the sordid and ugly. I paint life as I would like it to be, unquote. That sentiment and patriotic Rockwellian vision of America and her people, along with the paint-stained artist clutching his sable brushes, are why Norman Rockwell is so hated by the artless champions of a colorless, postmodern, liberal world order. That concludes this edition of the More Than Right podcast. If you wish to make a comment, you can contact the show at morethanrightpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Steve Lopez.